it's basketball season and we've got you covered. The Ringer NBA show breaks down the latest and greatest around the league five days a week. Check out The Ringer NBA show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Oh, I can't do the uh, Europa League theme tune this morning. No. Should I just do it anyway? You want to, you see. It feels weird on a Monday. Yeah, it's not to go for it. You're gonna. It's your podcast. Da, 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 da. Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast in Ring FC. I'm Mr. Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm right, thanks, man. How are you? Very well, thanks. Yeah, this week started nice and quietly. Did it, Ryan. Yeah, so how are you? Are you good? Yeah, I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm fine. I, I managed to just focus on the football that I really needed to focus on this weekend as opposed to watching everything, which felt quite nice, actually. It's, not, it's been quite a while since I've done that. I tried to, but then other things kept jumping into the picture. I managed to play some PlayStation, which was nice. Switch off for a bit. Put my phone in another room for like an evening or most of one day. It was great, actually. This might sound a little bit kind of like life hack. Mm. But putting your phone in another room is extremely freeing, especially when you're trying to have some downtime. This sounds like a weird thing to say, but I, um, for, for a certain period when I was working on a, a writing project, which has thankfully now ended, I would have my meals at my desk I just have my meals at my desk. And then what I started doing was actually just like having meals. It sounds ridiculous, but that's in the kitchen, away from everything and just separating work and relaxation, which is such an obvious thing to do. Yeah. But you just get into habits over the period of time. Yeah. Like on Sunday afternoon, even, no, it was evening actually, I realised that I hadn't actually left because it was a bank holiday on Saturday in Germany, Esther May, 1st of May. So everything was shut. So supermarkets right. aren't open in Germany on a Sunday anyway for people who haven't been to Germany or aren't aware wasn't much to do on the weekend. The weather wasn't great. I was in the flat most of the weekend. I realised that it got to like Sunday evening and I hadn't actually left the apartment. So I decided to go for a walk to one shop a little further away, which I knew would be open just to get some chocolate. That was my treat for the weekend. <laughs> you need to stretch the legs though, don't you at times? You need but also to. I had this um, overwhelming craving for, for some chocolate on the Sunday evening. <laughs> I can because, be and also, yeah. to be honest, because the Man United, because the Man United Liverpool game didn't go ahead, it kind of bought me a bit of time. So I was like, "Now's my chance. I'm out of here. I'm going to go get my chocolate right now." 
Well, actually, before we get into that, we'll get into the United game. Uh, but before we do, how are you? Yeah, admin, admin. Oh, I'm... That's, that's my that's my most important admin, Musa. How your well-being oh, is my... Oh, too kind. Is, it's on, my, it's on my, my, my weekly list of, of things that I have to do. I'm like, how is Musa? Make sure I Musa's had okay. an amazing night's sleep this weekend. Just one? <laughs> yeah, just one. And it was amazing <laughs> because I, I, I finished a big writing project um, on the Friday. Musa's got another book coming out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, yeah, I do. Can't actually. even drop that joke this week. So I know it's actually true. I do. Um, <laughs> Unbelievable. So basically, yes, yeah, so I finished the manuscript for Striking Out, which is the book I'm writing with Ian. It's coming out in September. So I finished that on Friday. And just the feeling of filing a project is just, it's so joyous. And so I just woke up the next morning. My body was just like humming. It was like, you don't have to get out of bed you have to do this. You can be in here till 1pm. I got about midday, but... What kind of humming? Like, not like Godzilla when he's about to unleash the... It's a similar feeling. So you woke actually. up in the morning, got out of bed, and you kind of did that like... Yeah. <laughs> to the kitchen kind of thing. Put it this way, half of Berlin is now not there. Look out your window. <laughs> you just see cinders. Moose's <laughs> hot takes and stuff. Oh dear, this is silly. So you, so you got some good night's sleep. That's nice. Yeah, it was amazing. And then um, got a little bit of writing done, uh, which is nice. Just working on something else, structuring something, which is fun. Because it's always good to like start something new once you've taken a little bit of breath, because mm-hmm. you're obviously in a good place creatively. Mm. So I started sketching something else out, which is fun. We'll see where that goes. But yeah, otherwise just life is good, man. Life is good. Lovely. Well, now that my main bit of admin's out of the way, oh. your well-being has been confirmed as okay. I hope everyone else is staying safe and well. Getting vaccinated if you can. Yep, yep. And uh, yes, yeah, some admin. Don't forget to check the ringer.com forward slash soccer. There will be some stuff going up this week. Don't forget to check our Stadio Outros playlist, all the music we play out with each episode yep. in one handy playlist. The latest one is at the top. And if you do listen to us on a podcast app that allows you to rate and review, please do so. Be very kind. It really helps. It really does help. Oh, also, one thing we haven't plugged for a while, stadio.bandcamp.com. Our theme music is for sale and we donate all the money. We're waiting until it kind of hits a certain point before we do our next round of donations. So if you do want to buy the music, I think it's a minimum of three euros. And yet all of the proceeds or our our share that comes after the fees and stuff through Bandcamp gets donated. If you want to do that, that'd be very kind as well. I think that's all the admin. Yep. So today, man, Football hates us, you know. Football absolutely hates us. We've been trying to do this four Classicos podcast for nearly a month. And every time we're, we see a window where we can do it, football's like, nah, uh Yeah. But we're going to do it. We'll do it. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the Old Trafford stuff. We'll talk about the Women's Champions League semi-final second legs. We'll talk about Serie A very briefly. And then we will do the four Classicos in 18 days, finally. Because I think today is actually the 10th anniversary of the final one. Oh, wow. Okay. I think it's today or tomorrow. The but anyway, this week. As well. This yeah. week. Yeah. So uh, let's get on to it after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, man. So Manchester United-Liverpool did not happen on the weekend. Sky's biggest fixture of the Premier League schedule for the weekend, the showbiz event, the main event. Fitting it in a weekend where social media had a blackout, the game had a blackout too. Oh, I see what you did there. That's very, a very uh, different type of protest. Indeed, yes. You know, he didn't have a blackout. It was that guy who scored an overhead kick in the Stretford end. That was wild. A friend of mine, Ed, shouts to Ed, he responded to a tweet that I wrote for I, I posted the screenshot from Carl's piece for The Athletic, where it said, one fan scored an overhead kick in the Stretford end. My friend Ed, who's a Man United supporter, just responded saying, just call it 1-0. Just call it 1-0. <laughs> well, I, I must say, if, it was, um, if there is a scoreline, this is probably protesters one Glazers nil actually in terms of the objective. So for those who are not aware of the context, the Glazer family have owned Manchester United since 2005. They took over the club with the help of very large, very large amount of loans. And they've been, I suppose, using the club as a kind of revolving credit facility to earn money back um, ever since. So they've made quite a bit, but in the times as they've been in charge of the club, the condition of Old Trafford's got progressively worse. United haven't reached Champions League was it semi-final in 10 years. You know, it's been a real challenge for the club on and off the field. And it might, you know, it might sound ridiculous considering United's turnover and the size of the club and the fandom, but standards have been gradually declining. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two things can be true. No one's going to get the tiny violins out for Manchester United, but also... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. How, how a certain club view success is all contextual anyway. Yeah, and this, is, this absolutely is not about United fans seeking violins, just to be clear. It's really about ownership and what an owner is meant to bring to a club and the Glazers, they haven't brought it. And the thing is, I don't think they'd even dispute they haven't brought a fan experience that's been enjoyable over time. So as disturbing as these protests were for several people to watch, well, however disturbing they were for some people, 16 years in the making of successive seasons of discontent, fans falling out of love with the club that they grew up loving, setting up another club to kind of remind them of what United should be, trying to get back to their roots. Now, there were several thousand people present. It was a couple of thousand, right? I think Carl said in his athletic piece. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, a couple, and a few hundred at the Lowry Hotel in Manchester where the United squad was staying. Yeah, so it was, it, was a, it was a large protest and conducted for the most part, I think credit to actually the vast majority of protesters and credit to, you know, just everyone involved in and around the club, the stewards, you know, protests of that size are always difficult to handle, but I thought actually, to be honest, in the context of protests of this size and this passion, I feel that views were aired, concerns were raised, expressed with a vigour that they've been expressed with before, but this is the point that was made as well by several people. All forms of protest within 16 years have been exhausted. If people say, try this, try that, there's a lot of people going, oh, try this, try that protest. Well, all I can say to that is everything in 16 years, people are suggesting, has been done. Literally a, th- a few thousand of Manchester United's longest serving or yeah. most hardcore fans set up another club in protest. They absolutely did. Like everything has been done. All proper procedures have been followed. I would actually just like to see a bit more scrutiny of what the Glazers plan to do with Manchester United. And I think this is the first time for me, what's interesting with the European Super League, I think it's the first time where, and this isn't just about the Glazers as individuals, it's really about 
what the structure of ownership and what that kind of ownership does to a football club. It's the first time that a significant number of fans beyond Manchester United understood what the end point of that form of ownership leads to. Mm-hmm. And they didn't like it. So I would just encourage people to look at the protests in that game, to look at them in the wider context of the European Super League and be like, actually, this is the discontent that this has raised. Yeah, my, th- my thoughts on the whole thing are actually quite, quite brief. Mm. First of all, no one wants to see anyone get injured in a protest. And I think there were a couple of police injuries. However, I think that quite often in any form of protest, when something like that happens, people use that as an excuse to discredit the protest, its meaning and its purpose as a whole. And I think that's really dangerous because I think that if you take any moment in history that resulted in change mm. and the protests that led to that change were taking part in the modern era, all of those yeah. protests would be discredited. Literally everything that we celebrate, every celebrated change in history that came through protests, they all start peaceable and something triggers it to set it off into another direction. So I think that, yeah, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable with people focusing on a, a certain acts of a few individuals to then ign- use that as an excuse to ignore the overall reasons why the protest took place. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. And I also would say as well, while what happens in boardrooms may not be what people typically regard as aggressive, the takeover of Manchester United in this fashion. Other clubs like United has been extremely aggressive and the pricing of ordinary fans out of football clubs all over the world is extremely aggressive. Yeah. Um, and it's a form of aggression that we don't normally talk about. We don't talk about the rising cost of rent as an aggressive thing, as a violent attack on someone's paycheck. But actually in terms of the misery, in terms of the misery that the increased cost of living and the pricing out of entertainment and pure enjoyment is, that's a pretty brutal attack on, on well-being as a whole. I, you know, I've always felt that. And I, I just don't think that we talk about it in those terms. I think it's very easy to be like, oh, well, if you can't afford it, the market will take care of it. Other fans will come and pay. No, it's about something else. Football clubs are not transactional. They're not like going to the supermarket and picking up yeah, you know, we said this a million times. Yeah, we said, it's, we it's, have, it's, yeah. Look, football yeah. is a very strange, well, sports in general, but I think looking at, in this sense, European football specifically and English football, people know that they're trading on an emotion and it's far easier to push and push and push and push on that emotion because it's a very hard thing to give up. Yeah. You're asking people to quit the love of a single entity as opposed to quitting one brand of ketchup and switching to another is a very different thing. Absolutely. The other thing I would say with this, Manchester United fans do deserve a lot of credit because I saw a few people saying that this is something that they've only, I think Graham Souness was talking about it, about how this is only really something that they, has been going on since they've stopped winning the leagues and stuff, which is frankly utter bollocks. Nonsense. Because it's, it's like I said, Manchester yeah. United fans protested the takeover in the first place some of their most diehard fans literally set up another club in protest as we've mentioned and Manchester United yep. fans have consistently protested regardless of what level yep. of success they've, been, in, yep. they've yep. been achieving at Manchester United yep. so I think that argument is completely false it's embarrassing it's embarrassing actually the image of fans on the pitch kind of essentially occupying the, the Old Trafford pitch I think is an extremely powerful one football clubs are quite often seen as fortresses Stadium specifically, you can have all the protests you want going on outside the stadium and quite often they will not affect what's going on in the stadium. I can't remember the, a time where, this, where something like this happened due to a specific protest of a bunch of fans at the top level in England, especially for a fixture this size. 
stopping a fixture going ahead ahead of the game, I think, of this size, you know, it was a showpiece fixture of the Premier League weekend. The only thing I can compare it to was either, I think it was the when the Classico went behind closed doors that time a few years ago because of the protests that were going on in Barcelona, but they were of a political nature, not a footballing nature. Yeah, yeah. And the other one was when England and the Netherlands got postponed in 20, 2011 because of the riots that week that took place across the UK. But never in relation to but football. Never, specific, never specific yeah, yeah. football related. Now, yeah, I might yeah. be wrong, but in, in the Premier League specifically, I can't think of anything. This felt, this felt new. Yeah, this felt new. And I think that the image of fans on the pitch of Old Trafford letting off smoke in the old Newton Heath colours is a very powerful one. That image will be remembered for quite a long time. And I think the, the good thing about this, or the, the reason that you saw so many people attend the protest this time, was because what the Super League has shown fans in, in England specifically over the last few weeks is that their voices carry a lot more weight than I think they had been led to believe over the last decade, 15 years. Right, yeah. Or actually that they carry more weight than the owners would like to let them believe. Because yes, absolutely. owners don't yes. want this, obviously. No. no. This is the first time where I think you've seen sustained and unified rejection of the ownership model in English football for a long time for a long, long time, as long as I can remember, because fans have often been able to, uh, what's the word, kind of deal with it a little bit more if they're seeing success or, or they're competing on the pitch. And I think this time they've, they've realised that actually enough's enough. And we've, we've covered this on the Super League stuff, so I don't want to go into it more. And like I said, my, my thoughts on this were pretty brief. I think that for a lot of people, just to summarise, I think that I can totally understand why a lot of people might feel uncomfortable with what happened on Sunday. I totally get that. Yeah. However. I think on the whole, something like this needed to happen. One of the biggest clubs in the world got one of their biggest fixtures of the season postponed due to fans kind of saying enough is enough and protesting beforehand. I mean, obviously, in a pandemic, any scenes like that look really uncomfortable and yeah, just make sure you wear a mask if you're going to protest and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because those, yeah, that, that pandemic is still out there. Also with the the condition of the pitch and obviously the fact that you'd had a load of people in an enclosed space, which massively violated COVID protocols. I think that was, it was inevitable that the game was going to get called off. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. From a safety point of view, I think you had to. Do you know what's actually incredibly powerful as well? The fact this coincided with the social media blackout by athletes, not just within football, but across other sports. And clubs, yeah. All Formula One drivers and clubs. The fact that these happened the same weekend, I'd be extremely worried if I were a game as one of the game's administrators or owners because people got organised to a level and degree. Like when I saw the amount of people, the amount of organisations involved in the social media blackout, I was like, I was blown away to be honest because I was like, to coordinate all those people across the board for three days with all the different schedules they have and things to promote is incredible. And to say that as fans, business as usual cannot continue and will not continue unless our demands are met. And to say as players or athletes, business as usual will not continue unless our demands are met. I'd be extremely worried because my first thought is, well, when's this going to happen again? And what happens if athletes and fans start working together? Like where, where does this tumble on from? So mm. now this is a bit of a kind of, you know, quite literally the ball is in their court now. Mm. Um, if you'd said to me, I mean, this is, look how fast this thing has moved, Ryan. Mm. We had the European Super League and the owners were, cocky as all hell trying to make that move through and 10 days later they've got this that is disastrous Ryan it is if I was disastrous looking at the trend, for, yeah. for them if I was looking at the trend 
and the direction of traffic, as they call it, I'd be extremely worried. When you have power and, and wealth, dissent doesn't go down too well. No. It usually trumps dissent. Yeah. You can normally throw some money at it and it's fine. This time around, I think that the thing that will be concerning owners is that it doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon. And I think that fans and fan groups who have been working extremely tirelessly for the last few weeks, you know, supporters trusts have met politicians. They've engaged with the clubs. This is a lot more than some dudes throwing bottles. And another thing that I would throw into that is players and staff and Ollie and that I think will be fine because this was so clearly never a protest against them. And important to note, actually, there was a lot of, there was unified there was, yeah. praise for yeah. manager, yeah. the players, specific players, well, the, and as a whole, yeah. yeah. This is something that we've said a few times already is that what the Super League has done has created a clear boundary and separation between squad and playing staff or players and playing staff and the executive level of these clubs. And personally, I'm really pleased that the executives of these football clubs are now getting sustained scrutiny because they've deserved it for a while. And, it's, and when it, whenever it's happened, it's happened in little pockets and it's been quite isolated incidents from club to club. Like I said before, I think fans have realised their power, which has been slowly stripped away from them over the last two or three decades in England. Yeah. The other thing that I saw a lot of people say is that, well, this isn't going to achieve anything. Maybe so, maybe it doesn't, but that isn't a reason not to do anything. I'm slightly more optimistic. I actually think that this this is creating a bit of a groundswell of momentum that I think may result in change on some level because it's it's as long as it's as it keeps going on and just doesn't go away. And one final important thing for me, yeah. this came at a time when I think people were starting to wonder whether this was going to go away. And arguably the most impactful or disruptive protest of the lot in England came at a time when I think people thought that they might just start forgetting about the Europa League, uh, the Europa League, the Super League. I think we actually, yeah, and just, just before we move forward, just to reiterate, Manchester United versus Liverpool was called off. Mm -hmm. I cannot overstate how huge that, that's huge, Ryan. Like, mm. I think it's not, I don't realise how huge it is because there aren't fans in the ground and there aren't people on the street, like, and we're all at home anyway, but I think that we're going to look back at that and be like, my God, the biggest fixture, arguably in the footballing calendar, in terms of like history and heritage, you could argue Manchester and Liverpool is as big, you know, the exception of the Classico and maybe like the kind of Real Boca, like that's as big as they get. Well, I think it's the biggest fixture in English football. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it has been, yeah. historically. Um, yeah. You know. It's, it's absolutely huge. It's the, huge. The Ship Canal Derby. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, we'll probably leave it there on that, huh? Let's do it. Carl did a really good piece for The Athletic. Um, Laurie worked well as well. Laurie worked really well, well, yeah. Some, um, nice, some nice reporting. Yeah, there's some great pieces on there about it. And um, Jonathan Liu did a really good piece for The Guardian too. Oh, did he? I'm not really well, checking out. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. That's Jonathan Liu. Yeah. Yeah. We hit a, the right tone. Yeah. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, let's get on to some football because... Yes. And we should spend more time on this, but we will probably do it towards the end of the season when we do our end of season wrap-ups. 
Mm. Inter have secured their first Scudetto for 10 years. Incredible. And it happens so fast, actually. It happens with a total incident. They just, they just hit a particular vein of form about like 12, 13 games ago and just kept going, kept grinding it out. The sad thing was that it actually, they secured it when they weren't playing. Atalanta drew one all the way at Sassuolo, which meant that Inter could not be caught. Do you know why it wasn't a bad thing they won it? Because actually, it, it, if, if, they, if, they, if they had won it, I'd normally agree with you that it was a sad thing they didn't win it while they were playing. But because there aren't fans in the stadium anyway, really. That's a good point. It meant that Lukaku could get straight into his car and drive around Milan, which is what he did. So Lukaku was straight in his car, driving around, <laughs> singing with the same passion as any ultra about the league title win. And it, what I love about this, this is one of the most cathartic league title victories I can think of for a group of players in a long time. And it's funny because Inter have had this. Like 2010, Inter's treble victory was cathartic. They hadn't won the, um, well, they hadn't won the Champions League since it was the European Cup back in the 60s with Helene Herrera. And to win this, another cathartic moment because there's so many players in that squad who'd been written off. Um, <laughs> most of whom had left Manchester United, but also Christian Eriksen. Like, it's a big, big moment for them. And you've also got like younger players, midfielders like Barella, who are outstanding, who are kind of coming of age. There was something really nice about this squad of people who are thought to be part of it, people who are the new superstars like Lautaro Martinez, like the next wave. And this will, it's really exciting to see what that will do for their careers. Antonio Conte, who is basically the, the miracle fixer, as, we, as I say, the Calcio whisperer himself. Um, it's just, he can get a tune out of anything, apart from my first touch, of course, but he can resurrect pretty much anything else in football. So yeah, just shout out to Inter. Like, mm-hmm. delighted for them. I know this is what, right, this is a righty's house thing, giving flowers to individuals, but I would strongly encourage Mr. Ian Wright to perhaps present some flowers in the general direction of Inter Milan, Antonio Conte. Ian, we know that you listen to the podcast now and again, so yeah, <laughs> uh, for you. Yeah, so Inter's first title since 2010. So that's 11 years. Did I say 10 years? It's 11 years. Obviously, it's Milan 10. won it in 2011. And it halts Juve's run of nine consecutive Scudettos. Remarkable. So symbolically, it's even weightier. It's extremely, extremely powerful. Props to Inter. Props to Antonio Conte. Props to all the lads. Um, And props to Atalanta for making, for returning to something like themselves, given the brutal season they've had off the field mm. and playing some delightful football. So yeah, thanks. And it's been, and Serie A has been really entertaining this year. It's been far more entertaining than we'd have any right to expect. I mean, there's four games to go in Serie A and the way that it's going at the moment, it's kind of anyone's call behind Inter. Atalanta, Juve and Milan are all on 69 points. Napoli on 67. Lazio game in hand on 64. Roma, they're in seventh. They're the kind of, that's where the gap starts. So you got any one of one, two, three, four, five teams could finish in those final three Champions League spots. It's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, you imagine yeah. if Juve don't get in the Champions League. Because a couple Goodness. of weeks, was it last week? There was a one day when they were out of the, they were actually out of the Champions League spots. Wild. Completely wild. Let's go to the Women's Champions League. Second legs this weekend and they were all absolute, well, all, both, two. Can you get all of two? I suppose you can technically. They were both absolutely incredible. And both could have flipped the other way in yes. the last minute. Yes, it was yes. so weird. Was unbelievable. Wasn't it? Which one do you want to start? Start with um, Barcelona PSG, just yeah, because it was the first it. game. My goodness. Okay, so I was in the first leg. I was watching this and I was thinking, 
it's fascinating how PSG's strengths and Barcelona's weaknesses directly aligned to each other and vice versa. Like they were almost perfectly balanced, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the th- it was a Thanos thing, perfectly oh, balanced, dear. as all things should be. Sorry. Go. Who, who had that in the studio sorry. bingo? <laughs> MC reference, Musa laugh, bingo, bingo. <laughs> um, Talk about Brazil and get these people some money. <laughs> Exactly. Throwing a hot take. Ooh. Talk about hydration. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm going to bleep it. Sorry. My goodness. Barcelona PSG. The way this began. So Barcelona had had a couple of finishing issues in the previous leg. And they showed more brilliant finishing in the first, what, 30 minutes of this game than showed in the previous 90. Lika Martins with two. Lika Martins. In the first oh my goodness. Half hour. This ball down the line by Leila Harpy was, was glorious. And the finish. Leakin Martins arrives in the box at speed, maybe in fourth gear, like just a, a touch below top gear in fourth gear and just clips this absolutely glorious strike mm. into the top right. Second and one the was way just a that, tapping at the back post off. Was it Caroline Graham Hansen? Yeah, the yeah. Made it, and the wide, the wide play of Barcelona throughout was outstanding. Their movement in wide areas, I think, gave them a nod in this. So Leakin Martins puts Barcelona tunnel up after about half an hour and they look like they are just going to rampage through to the final. And then Marie Antoinette Cototo, who had a couple of bad misses in the first leg, gets one back after a bit of a goal mouth melee a couple of minutes after that. And then it is for the next 60 minutes. Relentless. It's like the NBA, fast yeah. breaking. It's just like, because each attack, I said this on Twitter, each attack was basically the jeopardy of a penalty shootout. Mm. Because at that point, a goal for either team yeah. becomes decisive. Yeah. Two away goals Super, yeah. would have been two away goals for PSG or would have been Barca going one ahead. And it's like that for an hour, Ryan. It's, it goes like that till the very last minute. It was amazing. And then who, who, is it, who had that chance right at the very end? Shuala had one. No, for PSG. Oh. Um, was it Gioro? Had that chance oh, right at the very end. Really, really close. Yeah. And the same thing happened in the Chelsea Bayern Munich game. There were two, they had two Bayern. Bayern had two chances at the end. Berenstein got one and there was another one they had ahead a of wide, which wasn't as easy as it looked. I thought the Berenstein miss was actually maybe worse mm. because Berenstein saw it in front of her. Whereas um, the later miss, it was an angled header that was hard to get. It's hard to get power and across the keeper from that. So it was on those misses that looked worse than it was. Ramona Backman had one as well, I think, in the, in the PSG, in the Barca PSG game. There were chances galore. I thought it was, it was such an entertaining game of football. I mean, let's wrap on that quickly because Barcelona returned to the final. First time since Budapest 2019. May 16th. Yeah, this one's in Gothenburg, I think. It's in Gothenburg. And they are in a far better position now than they were when they went to that final against Lyon. So let's talk, talk about Chelsea because this was another wild game and we had peak Emma Hayes at the end of this game. Oh my God. Crying, okay, this is yeah, shouting, fist pumping, hugging everyone. God, she's amazing. I love Emma Hayes so much. Like the first goal was unbelievable. The Frank Kirby, Sam Kerr counterattack. Where, to be honest, if you were looking at that from a buying perspective, you'd be like, "We should have defended that better." You it's saw what Emma like, Hayes said though, didn't you? Two against five. But do you see what she said? Emma Hayes said, um, "When I saw that it switched from a three-five-two to a four-four-two, and they had four at the back, I was like, Frank Kirby's going to eat up those spaces.'" Mm. And she did. That is exactly what she the, did. The, the Bayern defenders just didn't know who to track in that move. And then uh, Frank Kirby like, breaks into the Bayern half. Yeah. And about, what, 35 yards out, lays it off to Sam Kerr. Yeah. Makes a run kind of between... It looks like... I can't remember who the Bayern defender was. It might have been... I think it was Hannah Glass, actually. And she kind of 
I don't know why, but she kind of looks like she's waiting for someone to come down her left-hand side. Right, right. And stops tracking Kirby. And, by, and that just buys Frank Kirby the space, gets the ball back off. Sam Kerr. But it happens just, like, all the time. Does, you see it, how many times you see it one twos? That they broke with. That's, I mean, how so many times quick. do you see it? You're making the centre-back turn their heads. And it's very easy, not, not, not that you were doing this, it's very easy for people to criticise tracking the run, but the speed it happens and the way that those two change direction and they switch and they cut so well and they cut so late. I mean, and also the Frank Kirby touch, when she gets the ball back from Sam Kerr's speed, entering the box at that speed, unbelievable. She takes the ball on the instep and just cuts into the box and she's free. Mm-hmm. And then the finish with the left. It was amazing. That, bo- that goal is like a glorious goal. Yeah, yeah. I think Zara Zadratzil got the goal of the game. That's one of the goals of the season in context. If you consider the time it came. Angry goal. Do you know what? It didn't look angry. Do you know what it was? It's because the context of it was like, it wasn't like... Um, it was necessary. It was necessary, yeah. And you saw actually the legacy of that goal then, the closing down after that from Chelsea yeah. on that part of the box. They, they let her free. But that, that, in the context of it, that's one of the goals of the season. Champions League semi-final. What, 20 odd yards out? Outside the Maybe box. slightly more, slightly more than 25, slightly more. It was actually a very Sophie Ingle type goal, mm. funnily enough. Um, she ripped it. And so being so a post legend, Zara Zadritzil. She went to Bayern last season. Last season Hell of a player. Yeah, Hell season. of a player. Austria captain. She's great. Yeah, doing work. Doing work. Um, it was funny because I then, I, I was like, Everyone watch this game and everyone's like, no, check it here. It was like, all of a sudden, when I mentioned that it was being streamed, I got a load of different suggestions like, yeah, and here and here. And it was, it was really nice to see so many people like locked into it all over because I think we were so hyped after the Barca PSG game that a lot of people just stayed to watch it and hadn't even taken a, to, <laughs> taken a toilet break. <laughs> so yeah, that got Bayern back on level terms and they were actually then, well, they were, they were ahead in the tie and they got they their away goal. Were. And yep. then G made up for her not great free kick by then just like, Hit the free kick into the wall, bounce back to her, and then she just kind of P-rolls it under the... Just pop like, it back yeah. in, yeah. And it's, she just side-footed it back in. And it was really clever because I think she didn't, get a great, she didn't get a great contact on it, but I think what she's anticipating was put it back in a place of chaos because defenders and the goalkeeper will be unsighted. Mm. Also, so, the wall was kind yeah. of still planted, yeah. so Laura Benkart couldn't really see anything. And it just rolled into the corner. But... I want to say very quickly, sorry, sorry. No, go for it, go for it. I want to say very quickly that um, there's, I need to mention the return of Magda Eriksson to centre-back and Sophie Ingle to defensive midfield. It does make that whole configuration more mm-hmm. solid. It allows Jisoo Yon to really push on with a bit more freedom and mainly loopholes. So you just see the impact on the entire team. Uh, Sophie Ingle is most effective. It's funny because she scores spectacular goals, but she's most effective when you don't notice her. And she was wonderful, I felt, the other day. So yeah, that goes, they go into half-time with that Jisoo Yon goal. And they push after that. But actually still, in the second half, and this is the thing with these, both these ties, with both semifinals, the balance of power shifted every 20 minutes. You could watch that game. It's a game you could walk away and come back. You could go and like, you could look away and come back and be like, well, you'd be a fool if you did look away. But you look away and come back and you'd be like, I'm still not sure who the better team is here. Mm. Like, I, I'm not sure who the European champion is going to be out of these four teams at any one point. No, I mean, and like we say, the final very, very easily could have been Bayern PSG. Absolutely. Up until and that the last great three or four yeah. minutes because Bayern had a chance to, Laura Benkart came up for a corner and stayed up. Yes. And they were pushing, even at 2-1 because, um, no, sorry, Chelsea went 3-1 up. But even then, um, like Pinilla Harder's header from, who crossed, the, who crossed it? 
I I can't remember, but um, Benilla Harder's header with six minutes to go gave Chelsea a three-one lead. But another goal from Bayern would have won the tie. Yeah, and it's funny because those goal, and it, they nearly had it, and that's only how the the final clinching goal from Frank Kirby, which if you think about it, four-one and on paper looks like an absolute rout. It wasn't a rout, not at all, not at all. And that came from a Bayern corner and a scramble in the box, and then Chelsea broke, and Frank Kirby just rolled it into an empty net. And that was deep into stoppage time. I think it was like, what, 94th minute? 95th minute, actually. Quick shout for Penelope Harder as well, because Bayern had done a fairly good job of keeping yeah. her quiet. The last few times that Bayern had played against her, when she was Wolfsburg and now, now for Chelsea, Bayern had done their homework pretty well. And the fact that she still found space so late, it says everything about her as a player. Mm. So yeah, th- these ties were outstanding. Um, shout out to both teams. It's going to be a hell of a final. It really is. Because those are, those are probably the two most stacked attacks in world football, actually. I'm really hyped for it. I'm really, really, really hyped for it. I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. So props to Chelsea. Props to Barca. We'll see them in the final in a couple of weeks. Yep. All right, sir. Here we go. Finally. We come to the last. Finally. <laughs> Let's talk about the four Classicos in 18 days. Let's do it been 10 years how has it been 10 years goodness I think when we started Stadio one of the first things we said was when's the 10th anniversary of the, the four classicos in 18 days yeah because we wanted to do something about it um should we begin at the very top for those who may be unaware of what happened yeah let's do it let's do it so for those who are unaware we'll keep it very brief um 10 years ago Barcelona and Real Madrid played each other four times in 18 days with each game having huge consequences on La Liga, Copa del Rey and the Champions League. So they met for one final time at the Bernabeu in the league. Then was the Copa del Rey. Yes. And then Champions League first leg in the Bernabeu and then the second leg at Camp Nou. I remember at the time it being exhausted. I wrote a piece about it for The Ringer. You actually wrote a piece as well about the Ramos and uh, Javi rivalry during that period. Quite possibly the most unbelievable period of football I can remember at, at club level because it's just, I'm not sure we'll ever see anything like this ever again. At the time, obviously, Barcelona were about to win the treble. Yeah. Well, no, not the treble, actually, because they only won the double, right? They were on their way to winning a treble, which they obviously didn't win. Yeah. But they were on the, that was obviously the year that they beat Manchester United in the final of... As were Real Madrid, actually. Real Madrid on the way to treble yeah, as well. True. But Real Madrid yeah. were kind of further behind in the league. They were. Mourinho had just won the treble with Inter Milan, having knocked out a Barcelona team that looked unbeatable to everyone. Yeah. Brought to Madrid solely to kind of bring down the Barcelona machine. Yes. And boy, did he try. Do you know what? The tone was set, and I'm kind of, I probably reel off a couple of lines that I wrote in that piece about it, but the tone was set very, very early on in that very first Classico in the Bernabeu. I think the first foul comes within the first nine, 10 seconds. Yeah, was it Benzema on Benzema Busquets? Benzema on Busquets, yeah. And, it's, and it comes because Busquets is playing keep ball. He's hanging on to little drag backs, and that is almost a callback to the 5-0 that's happened. Yes, which is what we need to talk about in a sec. Absolutely. But yeah, but back, back to your point. So yeah, you're completely, you, you carry on with this because I'm loving it. Carry on. So carry on, basically carry on. that sets the tone for like the four Classicos because 
Right. I think there was as much shithousery and grimness and bleakness and infuriating, exhausting antics within the four games as there was absolutely amazing football, if I'm being honest. Yeah. It's bookended with two classicos that were much further away in terms of time, but that really act to frame the whole thing. So the first one, obviously, Mourinho's first classico, hammered 5-0 in Camp Nou. Yes. Literally his biggest defeat, I think, at the time as a manager, the first time he'd lost 5-0. And I think spiritually as well, it was extremely big. Utter humiliation for the players. Xabi Alonso said that after 20 minutes, he wanted to, like, just leave. Yeah. It was, it was awful. And it was pretty te- It was pretty tetchy. Was Ramos sent off that game? At the very end, yes. Uh, Xavi got a booking in injury time. And there was a kind of, like, altercation at the end between quite a few players. Which... I think it set the blueprint for what was going to happen apart from... Absolutely. So when you, see, when you see Busquets playing keep ball, the beginning of that first of the four Classicos in 18 days, almost regard that as Busquets is behaving as if he's still in injury time at 5-0 up. Mm. And it's almost like Benzema going, this is not the new edition of what's going to happen. But that first 10, 15 minutes of the first Classico was an absolute carnage. Brutal. Barcelona weren't actually playing that well. They had all of the ball. Mm. Javi, Iniesta, Busquets, Messi... All misplaced, really, really simple passes in that first opening 10 minutes. Marcelo cleans out the linesman at one point. That's wild. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. not on purpose, yeah. obviously. He takes out Messi and then ends up taking out the referee's assistant. One of the things I just, I thought watching it back, because we, we both obviously watched all of these back. <laughs> I remember watching the first 20 minutes of that first one being like, this is a tough watch. Oh, it's hard. Hard work. Now knowing what happened watching it back you're like yep yeah, I remember why this was so totally engrossing at the time live because you didn't know what the outcome was watching it back it's not quite as exhausting I don't think but it's not far off it was what were they had the midfield um, Madrid remedy of Pepe Chabi Alonso and Sami Khedira that is the most cynical accumulation of players you're basically like we're going to sit deep block you and stop you and launch something and Pepe actually you know Pepe was for the time he was on the field, and that's not said in a cynical way, I don't mean that having a go at Pepe. Pepe was brilliant. Mm. Pepe is arguably, well, he's certainly, I would say, over the course of the Classicos, he's a top three performer for Real Madrid. I think he's top three. He's so, so good at stopping key interventions. He even, scored, he even heads the ball off the post in the Copa del Rey final. Like, mm. he is brilliant. And to go back to that first Classico, watching that, what you realise is, Real Madrid's desperation not to be humiliated is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. All they're there for is to stop that. When you see the attacking talent doesn't make off the bench, I mean, Kaka is on the bench for three out of the four. Ozil makes an appearance. When people talk about Jabby Alonso nowadays, you look at that Jabby Alonso there and it's like watching a different play. You're like, oh, hell yeah, actually, he did go through that period where he was a complete shit. He was one of the spikiest players in those fixtures, actually, Jabby Alonso. None of this nice guy kind of, oh, I'm just going to go and finish my career. But he five. makes a point, but he talks about the, fi- but the, but the like, five, nil ch- the five nil changed him. He said the five nil was when we realized we were too nice mm. and we'd never beat this team. So he basically goes through a moment of like a conversion where he's like, we sat off them and we weren't aggressive enough. And he becomes aggressive as a result of that. That five nil, it's not what we're discussing, but it hangs over all these four fixtures. It's, it's present and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And then I think the, the four fixtures, hangover the final one of the bookend that we will talk about but yeah. I mean the game it just featured two penalties and it didn't really ramp up until the second half I thought it was intense in the first half but the second half is where it really really ramped up was it Raul, Raul Albiol brought, brings down yeah. David Villa gets given a red Messi puts it away great penalty 
It was a good penalty, yeah. And that, Punches it. And it was really interesting because I think Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi at the time were level on goals. That was Messi's 30th in 29 league games. And then there was another penalty towards the end for Real Madrid, which Cristiano Ronaldo puts away. And that's basically it. It was a really weird mixture of emotions from Real Madrid. You can see Casillas at full time kind of trying to round up a group of players to applaud the fans. And it's really weird because Real had lost four straight Clásicos before that. So it puts the end to end the run. But they kind of know the league's done, but they have to put on this weird United face because they know that they've got a fate. There's so much more to play for in the next three. But also it's weird, also following a performance that, to be honest, was quite grim. Oh, it was totally grim. I think Barca yeah. had 76% possession they had in that first game. But the thing was afterwards, it just kickstarted this whole media frenzy because I think the reaction to the, to the draw made Mourinho double down even more. Like, I think these four fixtures changed Mourinho. I think the, the Real Madrid job changed him anyway, and I don't think that's any doubt. But I think these four fixtures almost kind of like radicalised him a bit. Mm. He was always spiky and a bit of a shithouse before that, but I think these ones specifically changed him because he was at a club like Real Madrid where it was kind of like he'd finally met his match. I think he'd kind of had his own, not his own way, but he'd, he could very easily walk away from any club job he'd had so far, apart from maybe the Benfica gig, which he walked. He'd been able to impose himself on every structure before he'd arrived. Yeah. yeah. Every, every structure, yeah. And there was, there was always a sense of, well, look what I brought you when you left, kind of thing. With Real Madrid, bear in mind this is his first season there, you already have Alfredo Di Stefano coming out and writing a column about how grim it was and how amazing Barcelona are, the way they dance. It's like they play football like they dance or something like that. You know, you have a, a, an all-time Real Madrid great, arguably the greatest player in their history. Right. He's got a cluster of Champions Leagues behind him. So he can, no, European Cup, so he can say what he likes because yeah. he's done it. He's coming out in your first season in charge and basically just being like, this is horrible. I hate all of this. I'm paraphrasing. But basically just, when you have a Real Madrid great praising Barcelona to that level after a Clasico, ahead of three more in however long, 15 days. The symbolism behind that is gigantic. And I think Mourinho knew that he kind of couldn't outrun the Real Madrid. What's the word I want to say? Like aura? Yes. I'm going to use a Star Wars analogy. That one Jedi who thinks they're all powerful, all conquering, goes up another who, and they just can't do it. And it's like, yeah, oh exactly. shit. It's exactly what happens. I think it does strange things to people like that because obviously this is a guy who wanted the Barcelona job. He was at Barcelona with Bobby Robson. And he wanted the game. Desperately, desperately. He had history with Guardiola. It's like I say, if like in the piece that I wrote, if you brought this to a studio as a fucking screenplay, they would have laughed you out of there. They'd be like, it's a little bit on the nose, really. This is yeah, a little true. bit like, there are a lot of things that you've put in here that- They would have said, well, they said, just write this as a space opera. Is, well, this Seriously, is it. Just, it is, yeah, it yeah, is yeah, essentially yeah. Star Wars. It is basically it is. Star Wars. There's so much narrative up in it. It's, it's kind of, it's wild. This is the thing, you'll never see like anything like this ever again. But anyway. You, yeah, you know, no, 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 it's amazing. You never will. And I remember thinking like, thank goodness the players have se- seem to have separate tunnels for this fixture. Yeah. But, then, but that didn't stop them kicking off. That's the thing. I've been in the Bernabeu tunnel. Oh, wow. Okay. And it is very amphitheatrist because the two teams' tunnels are separated by a metal grid. That's incredible. And the way that the acoustics are in there, the steps down and then you step up again. So you come out of the dressing room, you step down. You walk through wow. a tunnel and then you go up at the end again. You ascend into the light. Everything reverberates 
and it's, it's epic. It's, it's that is yeah. epic. Yeah. Okay, so so after that first Classico, the tone is set, mm-hmm. and then we have the Copa del Rey final, mm. which is fascinating because even though it's a huge game in its own right, it still feels like a trailer for something else. Because what these both what these teams both really desperately want is the Champions League, right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So this is a strange, strange fixture because again, incredibly intense. It's actually probably in terms of atmosphere or spectacle, not spectacle, but spectacle it's is a Mastaya, single game. Isn't it? Yeah, it's Mastaya, Mastaya, well. which is yeah. obviously an unbelievable stadium. But because it's split 50-50 fan-wise, it's, mm. it's probably the most relentless in yeah. terms of atmosphere. And obviously it goes to extra time. So It shouldn't have because Real in particular have some very presentable opportunities in normal time. Sorry to cut in, but it's almost like a B-side on a single that's better than any of the A-sides, this, this one, because it is actually no, it's a, great a very point, yeah. good game in, its, in terms of a standalone and a spectacle. Yeah, it's, the best, it's weird. It's the best. It's funny because the fourth game, the fourth and final game is the most relaxed and the most open, but the Copa del Rey final is the best game. I think, I think in, in terms, terms of, of singular standalone yes. fixture, I think it's the best one, yeah. I think that's right. I would agree with that. Um, and... That's such a nerd cut, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah it is a nerd cut. Well, yes, that's actually, my well, actually, I think the Copa del Rey final was the... Uh... And here's a bit of a nerd, well, actually, even though Xavi's on the losing side in this one, because Real win mm. 1-0, Xavi's unbelievable. He is unbelievable, Xavi yeah. is... I, I told us and I was like, my God, watching Xavi back again, and this prompted me to go and watch other Xavi games for Spain, it blows me away. It blows... When, when, when you watch him, it's like, this man is receiving possession anywhere on the field and finding gaps anywhere. The amount of times he slips a pass through the centre circle between two pressing midfielders yeah. to the on-running Busquets. And there's also a moment in this, because in the second game, um, it's just the recycling of the ball. It's nothing even specific. It's just his ability in that, in that cauldron to retain calm and tempo when others aren't doing it. Like Messi, his, Messi loses it. Messi loses the ball. So for the actual um, decisive goal in this, an extra time. Cristiano Ronaldo header, which is brilliant, by the way. Yeah. But Messi loses possession on, uh, near the halfway line and the ball comes all the way down the flank. Marcelo plays um, a give and go. Well, it comes to Di Maria. Di Maria gives it to Marcelo. Marcelo releases Di Maria and Di Maria hits this cross. And it's funny when he hits the cross, he does this kind of little jump like someone following his drive down the fairway. <laughs> He's just like leap in the air. And Ronaldo's header is like unbelievable. Angling it back across. And the thing is about that goal and that finishes, Ronaldo is ready. He has so little of the ball in those four fixtures, and he is always ready to finish like that. This is what's incredible about this whole game where you realize that like when a guard mm-hmm. is dropped for a split second, an elite player steps up, mm-hmm. which we see obviously later in relation to Messi. So that's the Copa del Rey final. And the celebrations at the end are quite interesting. I find them quite pointed. I'm like, is it just me seeing this? Or is it almost like are these celebrations exuberant just because it's the Copa del Rey or it's almost like this is a statement, like we're coming for the, the bigger cup later? Because it was almost like the way that Real celebrated that victory was very like, like territorial, mm. right out there. I know it's middle of the pitch, but the way they sort of were like, there was such a kind of swagger to them and a kind of like, we put a marker down. Five nil in autumn, one all, but we are winning this arm wrestle and we're going to win it in the, in the semi-final as well. And that was a moment you were almost like, could this go maybe the other way? From a Mourinho narrative point of view, you know exactly what he would have been telling them in there. You know, he could blame the, the five nil earlier on in the season at Camp Nou on a number of things. Mm. He hadn't long had the job. 
and then to kind of stop the bleeding as it were in the first of the four the 1-1 one, one draw nice little run first of the four the 1-1 one, one draw and he could also say who did we know that there was going to be three more <laughs> the boom bap <laughs> had elements of likes of the 1980s there there we go Hun DMC so um Keres right Keres Keres Hun <gasps> Keres Hun oh my god before I forget this thing about Mourinho, what he can then say is, he goes, look, we tried playing open. We tried playing the Real Madrid way. We yeah, lost 5 nil. Trust me. We played the Mourinho. Yeah, we played the Mourinho way. We got one all draw with 10 men mm-hmm. and we shut them down. We've won a Copa del Rey. Now let's win the big one. And what's interesting, of course, is there's a moment before the first leg of the um, Champions League when Mourinho has been going at Pep for a while. Pep's been very dignified. And Pep then basically unloads. But can we just get a shout out for Sergio Ramos dropping the trophy under a bus, by the way, which we haven't mentioned. <laughs> Incredible. Del Rey. This is the thing that there are so many moments in this whole thing that you, th- yeah. you don't, uh, you, sometimes I think your brain doesn't connect them all that they happened within 18 days. Fucking Sergio Ramos. It was their first copper as well in, since the ni- early 90s. I think it was 18 oh, wow, that years. Long. That long, my God. Again, this is a big, big game. This is not just like a random thing that they've won a couple of years before that. This is, this is big. And then Sergio Ramos drops it under a fucking bus. Didn't it remind me of actually, it's the way that like, so there's the Stanley Cup in, in ice hockey, for those who don't follow ice hockey uh, much. Um, the Stanley Cup is a cup with a long tradition of being waylaid. <laughs> Battered, knocked about. It was found at the bottom of a river at one point, disrespected in someone's... Sw- they went around, I think it was at Sports Illustrated, went to someone's place and it was in the bottom of their swimming pool. <laughs> so it's like... Respect the trophy. The Stanley Cup is it's a big cup and it almost feels like if the cup is too big, it gets disrespected. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ramos drops the trophy and then... And then we go um, from that into... Obviously, like, Madrid have bragging rights at that point, which is pretty amazing, isn't it? If you think about the context of four Classicos, to get bragging rights and a trophy in the middle of this whole process, what an incredible turnaround to go from a 5-0 defeat to the cup holders, right? Because 5-0 doesn't win you a trophy by itself, doesn't put you in the history books. So you've got that, and then you, there's all this chat, and Mourinho's obviously a bit cocksure, and Pep basically snaps and comes out with a speech that many regard as a turning point. Well, the, the most important thing is that the players regard it as a turning point. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's seen Take the Ball, Pass the Ball. Yeah, because there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of, it's very easy to sort of retrospectively go, oh, like, Pep shouldn't have done that. But the players were like, we were kind of looking at Pep, asking, wondering ourselves, you know, asking ourselves, wondering how he was going to respond to all Mourinho's provocations. And he comes out with a monologue. Yeah. The reason that this happened was because Mourinho had consistently pulled out things where Guardiola was talking about the referees. Yes. The comment that triggered this one was basically Mourinho had said something, I'm paraphrasing, but along the lines of, you know, there are usually two sets of managers. I'm in the group that complains about referees when they get decisions wrong. Yes. There is a very small group who don't complain Never about complain. referees. Yeah. yeah. And then there is a, a Guardiola is in his well, he said Pep is in his third, a third group that complains about referees when they get the decisions right. None of the players know that Pep is going to do this, by the way. Right. So he'd been talking for a while. I think it was just like three quarters of an hour in and it was right at the very end. And he said, um, he called me Pep and you know something's about to happen. He said, normally he talks about the team or a club or a manager, but this time he named me. He says Pep. If he says Pep, I say, hey, Jose. He also says this thing where he says uh, he, uses, he uses two. So he uses the informal thing. So he says, I will do the same. And then he says, you know, tomorrow at quarter to nine, 
we will play a match. Outside of the field, he has won all year. The entire season in the future, he will win. He can have his personal Champions League outside of the pitch, fine. Let him enjoy it. This is his Champions League, yeah. The media, yeah. The mind games are his Champions League. I'll give him that. But this is the game. You know, when it comes to sport, we will play and sometimes we will win, sometimes we will lose. We are happy with smaller victories trying to get the world to admire us and we're very proud of this. And basically he goes in and in and in. The bit that I love is when he goes in this room and he points right down a camera at the beginning where he's like, which one's, his, which one's where is his camera kind of thing. Amazing. And he says that, you know, in this room, okay, the, the Real Madrid press room, he goes, here's the chief, the fucking man. And here he's the fucking man and I can't compete with him. If Barcelona Incredible. wants someone who competes with that, then they should look for another manager. But we as a person and an institution don't do that. And he then goes on about other things and he says uh, if you think after three years that I always moan always make excuses and always complain that there is nothing I can do about that and the thing that is really it gets really really personal because Pep says something like we've known each other a long time right I think Pep is genuinely quite hurt by this where he he says mm. he has decided to believe what the papers say about certain things as opposed to just believing me or had he really started to believe it with you know with Mourinho I don't think he'd you know, I don't think he'd started to believe it at all. I think he just does. I think he just makes acquaintances of people and uses them as firewood later. And I think that his, look, the thing about it is, well, these are two people under an intense amount of pressure yeah. and you're hoping, and, and this is the wider context of this, is the amount of pressure. The national team's just won the World Cup. I know. And it's all kicking off. There's the Catalan yeah. nationalism, all of that stuff is brewing, bubbling. And so you've got all of that and it's like, well, appeal for calm, right? Have some like, modicum of respect, conduct this great rivalry, you know, in, an, in a manner of dignity. Let's have some dignity here. And they can't even get that. No. And when Pep realizes that, he's like, you know what? If the gloves are off for Mourinho, I'll take mine off too. And that is identified as a turning point. I think it's Puyol. Puyol comes out and was like, my God, like- We didn't know that Pep we saw that, that yeah. And we were, like, we were like, yes. Yeah. We knew, almost like they needed someone in their corner because Mourinho was affecting the mood so much. I mean, Mourinho, I, th I think it's hard to overstate how relentless Mourinho was in his attack and, and stuff like that. It was relentless. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Put relentless. it this way, Real Madrid, so there were four red cards in these Clasicos. Mm -hmm. Three of them went to Real Madrid and one of them went to Pinto, but Pinto was a substitute keeper that happened off the pitch, kicked off in the tunnel. So Real Madrid, of the three players to be sent off on the field of play, three were playing for Real and that was entirely, entirely at Mourinho's influence. The thing like is, in terms of the mood, it was he perfect for Mourinho though, because it kind of came like a self-fulfilling prophecy where he was just yeah. like, look, see, here is the evidence. Where are the Barcelona yeah. players getting sent off? Here is the evidence. Right. Look, only, only our players get sent off. And it's just like, yeah, did you see the amount of, sh like that Leo Messi got the shit kicked out of him in those classic Like, yeah. It's amazing, actually, that only three Real Madrid players were sent off. I do think maybe a Barcelona player should have gone as well at one point, for sure. Yes, but, yes. They got eight yellow. They got eight yellows in yeah. the 5-0 um, the uh, Real. But still, so, it's like, this was no... like, And this, is, this was actually very smart from Mourinho, because you can't prove against it, really. You right. can lay the, lay the red cards out as evidence that the referees are targeting Real Madrid as opposed to Barcelona. And there's nothing really you can fight back on. Everyone who knows, knows. But in terms of the Mourinho narrative, it's perfect for him. It's perfect for him, you know. He's, he, at this time, I think this was probably, like we say, this was at the very peak of Mourinho's 
powers, I think, and it's where the drop off started after, I think. Oh, completely. Even though they won the, oh, the year yeah, after, yeah, obviously, yeah. I know that. But I mean, in terms of his aura. No, of course, he was speaking. His yeah, aura, yeah, yeah, this right, was based, right. basically where he was at, at the absolute tipping point where he was his most. You know, you, you go to a club like Real Madrid and you basically have all of those people at Real Madrid. Whilst obviously it didn't work out in the long term, but at that point, first season, people were ready to go to war for him. However, the Guardiola thing had such an effect. Barcelona came out and won the game 2 0. Two very contrasting goals, like a scruffy, messy from post tap in. A brilliant wing play from Afalai who came yeah. on. Afalai. Um, See, some of, the, some of the, the supporting cast in these fixtures is unbelievable. is unbelievable. But then you have the messy goal, which Busquets still gets an assist for, which is wild. You know, the lazy one two with Busquets and then the dribble through and then the right foot slot away, which is a rare moment of beauty in what, is, what was a very brutal game, to be honest. Well, actually, what's funny about this game, there's a couple of things that were quite striking about it. Puyol playing left back. Mm. So Puyol doesn't get forward. Iniesta's ruled out. So basically, you've got the left side is just basically left to Puyol, a bit of Keita and Pedro. Oh, yeah. The first leg, at least. So basically, Chavi has to cover even more ground and he eats it all up. Mm. He's unbelievable in this game, um, as he always is. But the real turning point is the Pepe Ricard, because until then, mm. Pepe's provided this amazing screen. And I think I said to you before, like, it's so funny because in this game, it's almost like for the previous two or three games, Messi has given a trail of this goal. He keeps looking up and looking for the space and it's not there. And Pepe's gone. And the moment Pepe's gone, Messi leaps into the space that he's mm. left behind. So when that goal gets scored, the gap that he cuts through is exactly the gap that Pepe would have been screening and had been screening successfully for the previous like two and a half games or whatever it was. Mm. So yeah, it was um, a stunning goal. And, you know, Messi is it's so funny because he scores three goals in these four games, but he's always nibbling around at the edges. Like obviously he's central to the play. Yes, but he's, he struggles to impose himself because the defense is so tight. And, you know, you know that this game is tight when you watch even Iniesta struggling to break lines. Iniesta was, he struggled as much in these classicos to make players I've seen in any game. Like mm. in terms of his ability to actually like penetrate, he found it very difficult. That's, yeah. you know, it's tough. Like the amount of times they're like operating in really tight spaces, playing triangles and they're looking around, there's like, there's just so little. So they shift it back and go wide again. Mm. Unbelievable. So yeah, that's 2-0. And that game really is kind of the, it almost settles the argument, to be honest. Uh, yeah, two but, away goals. Where, but then Mourinho comes out after the game and goes absolutely wild again. Where he he does, but I think that's tirade about it. But I think, and again, he does, this but is that's he because goes, he knows. Yeah, but he, he knows. Then, but this is the thing. He goes on and on and on again about referee bias. Mm. That's when he drops that line. And it's like, if I tell you a for what I really think and feel, my career would end now. It's the whole. This is like the pre the prototype to if I speak, I'm in big trouble. Is it, it is absolutely. And it's almost the precursor to the league title um, the next season because I think he has a whole pre-season momentum to build up his aura. Mm -hmm. And then Real come out with this brutal counter-attacking team and score like over 100 goals and get 100 points. And, you know, so this is almost like Mourinho building. But in terms of the big prize, I think the rant is partly because he knows the moment's lost. He also doubles down on, the, on, the, on getting personal against Pep, which I think fully torches it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Where he says that thing about, um, I've won two Champions League, he has won one Champions League and that one would embarrass me. And it got so gnarly that like Barca released, officially released a statement, I think on their website, talking about potential legal action, formal complaints to UEFA 
And then you obviously have the return leg. I thought it started with the most freedom. Mm. There were more attempts on goal or like part, fluid passing moves in the opening stages than any other. It felt slightly like Barca were demob happy, mm. actually. They had um, an arm's length, didn't they? They did, they did. Um, and they said so they, the, um, they get the game's opening goal 10 minutes in the second half, but by then they're kind of in the, yeah, the dominant done. position. Yeah. Two yeah, away goals, 3 0 up on aggregate. Absolutely. And it was funny, like, one thing I will say is, you know, Pedro is kind of like, oh, he's a nice boy. And I watched these Classicos, particularly the last couple. I'm like, oh, Mm-mm. he's losing his, Mm-mm. like, he's Mm-mm. getting nasty. Yeah. Mm-mm. Pedro is, yeah, he wasn't all that. No one on, the, no does, one on that pitch for those four Classicos could, could come away from it being deemed a nice guy. Maybe no, apart they from really Ica, couldn't. Maybe apart from Ika Casillas. Yeah, I, I like Casillas. He's such a class act, Casillas. And I look at, you look at that and the way that Mourinho targets him later and ends up bundling him out of the club. Grim. And that you think that's really nasty. If you see how Casillas is treated mm. subsequently, there's a great thing that Del Bosque says. Del Bosque says that Ike Casillas was targeted by Mourinho because he was a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Literally because Casillas went to Chavi and said, look, can we squash this? It's getting too much. That is what turned Mourinho against him. And it's completely plausible. Well, Del Bosque said it. So why would Del Bosque lie about a thing like that? Like, he knows Madrid. And that really saddened me because you look at Casillas and he's such a force for decency. All the things that we look at in football that we say should exist. I mean, he's called Sanike. Like, he's just a lovely dude. Like, he's a lovely guy. And it's really sad to see that happen to him. Um, just to say quickly about this game, just to sort of on, in relation to the football itself, the Pedro goal in the Classico, mm. there's a certain thing he does where he takes it with the wrong foot. He takes the right foot first touch and finishes with the weaker foot, the left. He does it um, in the 2 0 in yep. the league. And he does it in this game. And I'm like, you like doing that. That's your thing. That's your special move against the against it's, like, it's like dusting off the fine china. Yeah, it is. It's, like, oh, it's time for the Pedro finish. And I love that Pedro gets his moment in that game because he's someone who, you know, in, in the ranks of Barcelona, of course he's adored in the club, but may not enter the conversations as one of the great wingers all that often. But the role that he plays in both of those Champions League titles is absolutely vital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shout out to him. Um, one other thing. So yeah, Marcelo, Marcelo scores a sort of scrambled finish 10 minutes later and it's like, it's done, Marcelo, it's done. I wrote a line in the piece that I wrote for The Ringer saying that it was, like, watching those games back, it was like if Game of Thrones had run four continuous episodes featuring the Battle of Winterfell. Oh God, exactly. Brilliant point. It was a gruelling, yeah, absolutely. Uh, once is like, whoa, holy shit. But then actually four of them Four fixtures in the road that epic are very much like, whoa. Spiritually draining. It's beyond even physically spiritually mm. draining. My goodness. Like the intensity, even watching them back like 10 years later. I mean, obviously we should just clarify for those who aren't aware, like Barcelona then went to the final of the Champions League, beat Manchester United at Wembley. Won the league that year as well. Pedro with back-to-back goals because Pedro gets the opener in that final. He does. Messi scores that amazing goal from outside the box. The Classico that follows in the, the Super Cup I think this is the really interesting thing about the Four Classicos is that actually the most brutal Classico doesn't even happen. It's the one that happens straight after the Four Classicos. There's a brawl in stoppage time where Marcelo absolutely wipes out Fabregas right in front of the dugout. Marcelo's sent off. The brawl in this game was the worst out of all of them. It was absolute carnage. It's the one where Ozil absolutely gunning for, I think it's for Pinto. But like Ozil is, is the angriest I've ever seen him in his entire career. Like he is incensed. He's, he has to be dragged away. The level to which Mourinho soured the mood is just extraordinary. This is the thing. It's like the whole fixture became 
even more flammable. I think. Yeah. Um, but like I say, if it being Carlo Ancelotti there, totally different set of fixtures. This is the game, obviously, that Mourinho walks, what, five, six, seven, eight metres, completely unprovoked, up behind Tito Villanova and just hooks a finger into his eye for no reason whatsoever. Unbelievable. And Mourinho comes out afterwards and says that, you know, there was a, there was a, you know, there were reasons why. He, he also did then, he <laughs> There's an amazing headline somewhere where he says, you know, I regret hooking up my finger into Villanova's eye, which, yeah. But it's just like, you think about it, that, that was where I think it really started to unravel aura-wise for him because even though they won the league that year, that's not normal behaviour. It's absolutely unhinged. Yeah, completely unhinged. That's the thing. As soon as Mourinho became unhinged, yeah, that's when it all started. Real Madrid, he came out with some wild stuff before, but it was always very controlled and he knew what he was doing. Real Madrid made Mourinho unhinged, I think, football-wise. I think that he was, is the equivalent, like, hooking your finger to someone's eye in that context. The danger of that is such a dangerous thing to do because yeah. that person, you know, you could like cause some, yeah. even you could just, if you scratch the kind of top of, if you scratch the iris or just infect it, you could cause some eye damage, right? Like even on a, a glancing level. So it's just like, there was such a kind of excuse around Mourinho. Everything he did was said to be scripted, prepared, controlled. But sometimes the simplest explanations are the best, which is simply that, but what if he's overwhelmed? Mm. What if he's actually out of his depth? And the person that clocked it was Sergio Ramos. Because Ramos was all in as the lieutenant of Mourinho. But even then, when you start seeing Ramos, uh, Mourinho gunning for Casillas, and Ramos, an element of self-preservation, wondering maybe like, am I next? If he's going after Casillas, he'll come after me. But also Ramos growing into his own strength, being like, there's a way to do things in Madrid and this guy didn't get it. And years later, Ramos is still firing shots. I think even a few months ago, he said something, he didn't mention Mourinho by name, but we knew who he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I almost was, I almost wonder if it was like Mourinho wandering to that dressing room and players for the first time looking at him going, we have far more Champions Leagues than you or trophies than you, done more in the game than you on the field. Yeah, the Champions League wasn't a thing because obviously they were chasing La Decima at the point at the time. So none of that Real Madrid squad had won a Real Madrid Champions League. Apart from Casillas, yeah. And I think and I think I think that was the problem. He's the only one that could lead any kind of rally or rebellion if he wanted to. I don't think he wanted to. I think he was just being like a nice dude. But Kaka had won the Champions League, hadn't he? With AC Milan. Oh seven. Yeah, but Kaka was not Kaka was injured. Kaka wasn't that force. Yeah, because obviously Cristiano Ronaldo had won it with Man United as well. So the players had won the Champions League, but I think only Casillas had won it at Real Madrid. Right. So Casillas was the danger. In fact, if, you'd ha- if you had to ask me, no Mourinho as I do as always have, like in terms of like how he operates, who was going to go after? I would have said, yeah, he'll go after Casillas. That's the big game. That's the trophy. Mm. That's the ego he's going to want to bring down. Mm. And you know what the sad thing is? He did it. And they need, to, they need to be ashamed of themselves as a football club, Real Madrid, because they allowed that to happen. Mm. And I, I know that Casillas had had a couple of difficult seasons and hadn't had his best time, but how much of that is being unsettled by your own manager? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it exhausted both clubs, I think, to the point where obviously Pep left the year after the four Clasicos. Probably stayed a year too long. Yeah, well, I think uh, Johan Cruyff said, something like he should have should have left after that third season and I think Pep thinks he should have done as well but I think he, that's what happens when you love a club like that you want it to work 
Yeah, the the one if he'd gone at that point, I think it would have maybe maybe the rivalry wouldn't have gone even more toxic. Would have changed. Would have changed football. Frankly, would have changed football completely. Because I do think that that I do think that 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 Classico in the Super Cup meant that this wasn't going away anytime soon. It wasn't just thing a thing that was isolated to the four Classicos. This was how it was going to be, and it took a long time to. I don't. Well, I don't. I don't actually think it ever really recovered until recently when both clubs were so glaringly aware of their own limitations. Yeah. It's taken almost a decade, I think, for the Classico to remotely calm down. Yeah. In the piece, I kind of summed it up with, I think, just the sheer collateral from those fixtures. You know, I think it broke a, a number of people involved, some clubs to, the, to a degree. Some players. Some players, yeah. And I think it broke Mourinho ultimately long-term, even though he was successful. But I think that aura-wise, like we said, I think that was it for him. It soured a lot of the experience and relationship that Pep had with Barcelona, I think, as well. And then when Barcelona started moving more towards, more closer towards Real Madrid in terms of identity than they, like footballing-wise, than they were under Pep during the mid-2010s, obviously under the Bartomeu leadership, which we've talked about a million times, a lot of people will look back at that and kind of, I don't know, even though it was a an unbelievable period in terms of a uh, an event i think a lot of people might look back at that and be like actually yeah that was that was really grim it was grim you can feel you can feel it you can feel it and it, it's very cliche to say it but sid you know sid did write the the four battles one war thing and it really yeah. did, i think a lot of the time when you see people talk about that they talk about it like a <laughs> i know it's very very an easy comparison to make or metaphor to make, but a lot of people do talk about it. Like you would see people talk about a war. It was like. The the hostility was at every level. It was player to player, member of squad member to squad member. Mm -hmm. Obviously like, you know, towards match officials, there were the individual rivalries, the group rivalries, the manager against manager playing staff again, you know, the coaching staff against coaching staff. Goodness knows what, I mean, what goodness knows went on the tunnel away from yeah. our view. Like they got Pinto sent off. We saw that happening. Now there was all sorts of that. Um, just brutal. Mm-hmm. There's you know, two footballing empires kind of both close to their peaks, actually. Both close to their peaks because it, it took, a, it was pretty incredible. The, it was pretty remarkable. The fact that Mourinho stopped the Barcelona juggernaut twice in four years. The fact he stopped them in the league with that um, brilliant Real Madrid team of 2012 and the fact he stopped them in the Champions League with that brilliant Inter team. Mm. He's arguably the only manager on the planet who could have stopped Barcelona. Well, he, he was actually. He was, really. I think one of Mourinho's main regrets as a manager though was not being able to win the Champions League with Real Madrid. At Real. Yeah, I think, of course. Of course. Winning La Decima, that's the thing that he would have been, you know how he said like after every club he leaves, he can hold something up as be like, there you go. That's what I brought you. You know, obviously, yeah. Champions League with Porto, Chelsea's initial success that was unparalleled. The treble at Inter still remains the only side, the only time an Italian side has won the treble of League Cup, European Cup. And we know how desperate he was to win that at Real because the speed of which he, the speed at which he departs Inter, that video of him like leaving Materazzi and getting in the car. Mm. And he's off, you know, the moment he wins the Champions League at Inter, Done. it's like... Yeah, he's off. Yeah. yeah. The failure to secure that contributed to his unravelling, I think, as a manager. Absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. 
And, you know, like we said before, he then went back to Chelsea and won the league. And it's like, you know, he wasn't like he won the Europa League at Manchester United. It's not like he was done. But from what Mourinho thought he... Hmm, how do from I what he was. This? Yeah, what from he what was. he was and what he wanted to be, it wasn't the same after that. It just wasn't. He slipped into the chasing pack after 2010. In 2010, mm-hmm. he and Guardiola are out by themselves. Mm-hmm. In that moment, obviously like Sir Alex Ferguson, sorry, Sir Alex, but in terms of the new school, right? Sir Alex Ferguson is obviously like- Legacy. Footballing overlord, like Champions League final in 2011. Yeah, you had you like know, Ferguson and to a certain degree Wenger, but for different reasons. But in terms of the new face, in yeah. terms of the new face, the leading, the new pack, yeah. Bear in mind, they were both in their 40s at the time, right? So, But yeah, that, I mean, that, was, that was old, that was young then. But now, now it's not with Nagelsmann, like but mm. back then, back then, like 10 years in my day, you were 40, you were a young manager. Um, but I think that was the moment when he slipped into the chasing pack and then Pep was out by himself yeah. and he could feel it. And everyone knew it. Everyone knew it. Oh my God. There we go. That was, a, that was the year that was. That was the fortnight that was. Uh, two and a half weeks, three weeks, yeah. Exhausted thinking about it. I think I feel very much now the same way that I did at the time where it was just like, thank God that's over. I feel the same way as well. It was yeah. so utterly exhausting on a spiritual level. But I don't think we'll ever see anything like that ever again. I think two teams no. of that, that kind of rivalry at that level competing four times in 18 days with each fixture being pivotal on that, that scale. I think it's just, yeah, it'd with be that, very, with very, that, with that many players, very rare. Players that knew that each game. other. Yeah. One thing we haven't really discussed, which is a different thing, but the fact they'd won, I think Cap de Villa, when they took the, when they, in 2010, when Spain won the World Cup, the only player who was not from Real or Barca was Cap de Villa. Mm. And all the rest were like Real or Barca. That is an astonishing stat. Seven Barca players, three Real players, and one from Captivity. Yeah, this so is it. This, is the, this is the first season after they'd won the World Cup. Yeah. And it's all, yeah. <laughs> like them, all of their players are, are fighting amongst themselves. Yeah. It's a miracle they won the Euros, to be honest. No, it is. It is. And it's it an is. absolute and miracle. These are players who were having a team barbecue and celebrating on the same bus just months before. Yeah. And now they're punching each other. You know, that's a documentary. Oh my God, yeah. Someone that's a documentary that. I'd just, that's a documentary I'd watch in a second. And I don't mean some kind of like, you know, sanitized. I mean no, some actual. real. I want Ike to see it. I want someone to talk to Ike and seek him out. <laughs> uh, we should bounce because this has been very long. Okay. Um, so that's it. The Four Classicos is done. Yep, yep. We'll talk about it in 10 years time when we have the 20th anniversary and get even more wide-eyed about it. Let's do it. God, we're going to be really old in 10 years time. You'll be in your 50s. I'm already really old, so. Much love, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Yep, yep. I'm glad we managed to do that finally. Yes. Just nice to reminisce. Was indeed. Uh, we hope everyone's staying safe and well. Don't forget, you can check theringer.com forward slash soccer. You can check us on Twitter at Stadio, on Instagram at Stadio Football. Stadio Outros playlist on Spotify. Search for Stadio Outros. Uh, this episode we're playing out on Radiation Man by Fault 151. Anything else you want to add, Musa, before we get out of here? Just to say, I mean, obviously looking around the world and all the struggles we got with um, vaccinations in different countries, it's just really, really grim at the moment. So hang in there, everyone. Um, hopefully our help is coming away soon. Uh, so yeah, just thinking of you all. So I know it's tough. I've been talking to a couple of friends recently in different mm. places, different countries, and you know, it really is, it's a grind for so many people. So just to say that we see you, we acknowledge you, and we're going to try to keep Making Stadio as interesting, entertaining, and, and hopefully fun as possible. 
Or maybe you need to up your game a bit then. <laughs> oh my god. Bye everyone. Much love. See you Thursday. Bye. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs>